We really can't predict the future because nobody can. What we can do, though, is help auto manufacturers recognize, prepare for, and profit from whatever comes next. Auto Supply Chain Profits gives you timely and relevant insights and best practices from industry leaders. It's all about what's happening now in the automotive supply chain and how to prepare your organization for the future, because the auto supply chain is where the money is. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Auto Supply Chain Profits podcast. And today we have a recognized quality guru in the automotive industry joining us. Yes, we're going to be talking to J.D. Marhevko. And don't take my word for it that she's a quality guru. She is an ASQ fellow, a Shannon medalist. Keep in mind that that is an esteemed distinction awarded to just a small number of people. She was recognized by Cranes as a notable woman in manufacturing, and in 2020, JD was inducted into the inaugural USA's Women in Manufacturing Hall of Fame, to name but a few of her awards and accomplishments. In this episode, you will learn about the relationship between quality and delivery. The readjustment to agile problem solving in the world of disruption and why we need to use VSMs to break down silos. JD, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jan. JD, what's your story? <laughs> Once upon a time in a land far, far away. Uh, <laughs> I grew up really poor. All of the kids had to work to bring money into the household, and I, I started almost full-time work as a paper route, doing the bicycles throughout. And I knew growing up I didn't want to be poor again. So the most likely avenue to do that was to be some kind of an engineer. So I had that well-established that I needed to be an engineer so I could have what I wanted to have as an adult. As I went through my college years, I started college at the age of 16. I actually uh, did a lot of work with my grandfather, who was a, an operations expert. He was a tool and die maker for Chrysler for over 46 years. And uh, we used to go fishing a lot. And one day I dropped the engine, the boat motor, into the lake. And Grandpa made me rebuild the engine that day. Not one of my finer moments, but that was the first time I rebuilt an engine. Fast forward to 16 years later, I'm running my first engine plant. And in doing so, it, it gave me a lot of, uh, they used to call it chips in your shoes, hands-on physical experience in working with operations and people throughout the processes and learning to listen to understand so that as people were telling me what they needed to do their jobs well, I was able to be put into a position to help remove barriers to provide those activities. I've now had more than 30 years running various forms of operational levels positions, manufacturing facilities, quality and lean systems, maintenance. And in all of those roles, I, I continue to learn just so many new things. And, and I'm blessed with all of the team members and the mentors that I've had uh, throughout my career. So I try to give back. I, I heavily volunteer through the professional societies like American Society for Quality, AME, the Association Manufacturing of Excellence, Cadia, 
There's just so many organizations that we try to help be a part of so that we can make a difference in in how we give back through the world. J.D., you are such an awesome representative of quality and manufacturing, especially women pursuing those careers in the automotive industry today. We're curious to know your perspective on what's going on with all of these disruptions that have impacted all industries, but in particular the automotive industry over the past several years. How have you seen this impact from a quality perspective? What has been the impact? It's been interesting. The most recent role I took on, I didn't meet a single leadership team member. I didn't meet my boss. I didn't meet anybody for over six months. So I was completely working virtually. And I have to say, and it's a global team that that we have in my current environment. And with that, we have been able to positively affect every single key metric. So as I, as I look at the effect that this has had on quality and quality systems, it's not so much a, a negative per se on the product deliverables. What has happened is that there's been an intensive readjustment to agile problem solving. How do we get rapidly to the teams that are there doing the work in the moment uh, so that we can remove whatever barriers are in their way so they can be effective? We've had to rapidly adapt and redesign our validation testing processes and through product and process deviations going out throughout the world on a variety of products and processes to manage wide-scale substitutions because today it's here and tomorrow I can't get any of those. And in the act of doing these activities, it's, it's been really crucial to keep that end user in mind and how that product is being used because the subject matter experts can't get to these locations or they haven't been able to get to those locations to help the people that are implementing the changes. So it's just been a huge reshuffling of how you do your work in an agile manner that makes a difference. You know, we've seen that many organizations when it comes to describing quality or um, supplier performance, they look at quality from both the perspective of the product quality itself as well as delivery, which should be part of the equation, certainly. But one of the disparities that Terry and I have recognized is that on supplier scorecards, typically quality is given, you know, let's say the majority, 80% or more of the balance and delivery, on-time delivery is only about 15%. Why do you think that there's not that equivalent view of delivery at the same level of product quality? I think there's a a synonymous term with delivery. Delivery incorporates and includes quality of that product in that definition of delivery. So I don't think it's any less important. You have to have both. You need it on time or you can't deliver anyway, but you also need it to work well. And the, the point is, is that so many companies are, have been very, very successful with their forms of lean systems using uh, the level loading and Heijunka systems and, and various forms of just-in-time. And those are all critically dependent in many of our high-volume production processes. And there's a higher dependency even more on delivery, especially when you have very complex manufacturing processes. For example, in the world of printed circuit boards, you can have hundreds to a thousand components on a single board. And if one piece doesn't show up, you can't build anything. You're just as stuck. So with that said, delivery is a key critical 
component. Nevertheless, it still has to be right. It's interesting at the start of the COVID um, disruption that the automotive industry experienced, as the OEM started talking about re starting their operations and suppliers were saying, okay, where are we going to get some breathing room, some liberty? Immediately, the OEMs came out and said, product quality is not negotiable. And we still wonder, like, when is the the delivery situation in the automotive industry going to rectify itself? And do we need to put more pressure on the supply base to give attention to delivery? How do you think about that? Yeah, that, that's a challenge. The The barrier to entry on some of these products and processes is years, and, and it's an extensive capital layout. So it's not like flipping a switch and, and having these products made available to you right away. The shortages are real, but keep in mind that the supply chain themselves, this is their cash cow, this is their heyday. They are allowed to, to manage pricing with very little impunity. And it's not necessarily something that they're, they're looking to say, well, let me flood the market now so that they can devalue and commoditize their componentry. And it puts the downstream teams in a, in a very precarious position. From a United States perspective, we've offshored so many things, and we don't have the infrastructure in the U.S. We don't have the knowledgeable labor in the U.S. We have our older, you know, baby boomers leaving for retirement purposes, and we don't have the replacement pool of effective personnel coming in underneath. It's a complex situation. There's a lot of moving parts there. Nevertheless, the opportunity is for people to be more forward-looking. J.D., we often see that quality supply chain and IT are siloed in a lot of organizations. And with all that's happened over the past couple of years, Kathy and I really feel this has to change. We have to break down those silos and start working together. What would you recommend organizations do to, to attempt to break down the silos and remove them? Silos to me seem to be culture dependent. Uh, whether good or bad, I've been in a lot of different companies throughout my career. And I have seen matrix organizations, hierarchical-based organizations, functional-based organizations, both be very siloed or be very transactional in their approach. So it's the culture and how, in my mind, and what I've seen, how they approach lean. When you have companies that are focused on lean systems and process flow, the leadership in those organizations are often very well-educated and they're able to understand and apply those precepts themselves. To create that fluid cross-functional flow, the strongest process that I've seen is value stream mapping of the transactional activities. Many people are really good at doing it in the production environment, on the floor, in the cellular manufacturing, but they very rarely lay out the transactional processes and how things interact with each other. And that's absolutely key in busting silos. You've got the team together, whether they're cross geographies or not, but then they understand what they need to provide to each other and how they can help each other do a more effective process. And this is the make it or break it tool that I've seen that's been very, very effective here to bust silos. 
Yeah, JD, I love that. You know, value stream mapping is such a valuable tool and it's an it's a simple tool for really getting a perspective on your processes. We oftentimes find that organizations tend to focus the application of value stream mapping simply on the shop floor and they miss the overall supply chain or value chain from end to end. So that's really, you know, one of the things that we're encouraging organizations to look at is, you know, breaking down those silos is recognizing the overall value chain and the flow of information as well as the flow of product through their operations as well. We're curious to know what you have seen as far as best practices in applying technology to manage these value streams, in particular from the standpoint of being able to communicate information in real time, data capture, data analysis for decision-making. What are your experiences from the technology perspective? There's just a tremendous movement in what they call, you know, industry 4.0, quality 4.0, whatever 4.0 version you want to hang on it, and the digitization of data. And enabling that data collection, management, and translation are, are so critical in today's world that we, we need. And a challenge is that teams really need to manage that influx of information that they've got. You, you see tons and tons of KPIs now that have to be managed, and, and people are so overwhelmed because it's so easy to, to program something and just make lots of data come out the back end. So as I work with teams, one of the things that, that key things that I have to have people remember is that you want the data to work for you. And in doing this, you need to be very editorial in terms of what that output should be. You want that data coming in at the lowest level of the business as possible from a leading indicator perspective. Benjamin Franklin said, if you manage your, your pennies, your dollars will take care of themselves. And I take that as a leading lagging indicator. If you manage the things underneath the, the details, then you don't need to worry about the big stuff that's coming out, the, out of the process. I was just going to mention that that's so true because what we find ourselves in with this delivery disruptions is the result of not taking care of the systems. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit ironic there. But but if you're only tracking lagging indicators, which I find many companies do, you create, it forces a very reactive environment. If my margin's bad, well, what can I do about it? It's bad. Trying to peel that out and find out the underlying causes, it's already too late. If my PPM, my part per million, or my on-time delivery are poor, again, those are lagging indicators, and all I can do is react to those. And it's I find as I've gone through my career, I, I usually like a two to one ratio of two leadings per every lag. And that helps me when I'm setting up our strategic plans, when we're working with our functional teams, so that we're focusing on it as low in the business as possible, what we can fix, what we can adjust, uh, so that we can influence that lagging indicator. And, and don't get me wrong, lagging indicators are critical and necessary. It's how our customers compare us against our competitors. They have that that's their only measure they have. But I can't influence a lagging indicator. JD, I want to go back to something you were mentioning about the leading versus lagging indicators and we all would agree certainly that on-time delivery is a lagging indicator. What would you recommend could be one or two leading indicators inside of organizations relative to that lagging indicator of on-time delivery? What should they be measuring? OEE is a very strong leading indicator for me, operational equipment effectiveness. It's a three-part measurement in terms of equipment availability, yield, and quality. If OEE is not functioning well, you can't deliver. The other key leading indicator that I look at are the, the maintenance KPIs. 
So uh, uh, mean time to repair, mean time between failure. I have a, a measurement that I like to consider. I call it the firefighting metric. So I, I always, one of the first questions I ask the maintenance guys when I go into a shop is, if you had 100 hours of work ahead of you today, how much of it is planned versus unplanned? And I, I'm usually getting 80 to 90% unplanned versus planned. So that's telling me that they're, uh, that, that things are unbalanced and, and need to be rectified. And then a third, of course, is the upfront supply chain. Yeah, and you know, we actually see the same thing. In fact, uh, Terry is always talking about how historically supply chain has been managed mainly through firefighting. J.D., what would you recommend to people listening out there on how to really get their organization to embrace breaking down the silos, working together, leveraging IT. So many companies still struggle with that. They're on old versions of ERP. They're using spreadsheets. Do you have any, you know, recommendations to people listening on, on how to approach it to get your management and executive management to buy into to that? I look at three things in overall. Value stream mapping is key and critical. You have to have a full understanding of how that process is flowing, the second thing is leveraging that data that you have available to you, getting it digitized so that you're not spending all that time in crunching. The digitization is absolutely key, but making sure that it's in a leading indicator level and giving you information on what to do next. The third thing that I like to see is now that planning, uh, the, the catastrophic planning that we have to do so that we can be more more flat in our global approach and not geocentric. Yeah, and that really necessitates having good visibility, transparency, and real-time data in order to understand that. And I want to tie back to what you were mentioning about the planning, kind of the risk planning, and I want to say contingency planning. This is one of the areas that we have found through the work that we've been doing with our 24 essential supply chain processes, talking with suppliers, when we ask them, okay, pick the one, two, or three, pick the top three of those 24 that are the biggest opportunity for your organization to improve from a supply chain performance standpoint. Invariably, contingency planning is the number one. And it would be interesting to hear from your perspective how you feel organizations are doing on this other side of COVID. Because everybody talked about contingency planning, of course, when COVID hit, and we were all sitting at home waiting to restart operations. And they all committed, yeah, we're going to improve our contingency planning, but we're not seeing a whole lot of that. Are you seeing something different than us? I don't think you're going to see it very fast because of the the barriers to entry that exist. First of all, it's a hundred-year kind of cycle when you have these kind of pandemics, so it's not going to happen in their lifetime or in their kids' lifetime. Uh, so it's whew, it's past us. But what I do think we're going to see is more a uh, buildup of resiliency in making sure that they have more than one place to get products from. Not everything's going to come out of Malaysia or Taiwan or, or China. So that should, should something, whether it's another pandemic, but a fire or a tsunami, uh, any other type of natural disaster happens, there's, there's more flexibility in choices. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because we would really hate for, as an industry, that we miss this opportunity to improve our contingency planning and therefore the resilience of our organizations going forward as well. One of the other things that always come up in our research, too, is supplier performance. That's another key topic when you ask for the top three. 
Do you have anything to share with us on supplier performance, what you're seeing, how it can be improved? I think the biggest challenge is, is open communication. They're so challenged with human resources as well, just like everybody else is. So who can you talk to communicate with? And there's a, there's a balance that needs to be restruck to enable those, commun- those lines of communication to be reopened so that people can get back to the original condition of, of really sharing and be partners. J.D., we have to ask you this question. <laughs> Given your vast amount of experience and knowledge, what is the one action, the one thing that automotive suppliers must take now to improve delivery performance through your eyes from a quality perspective? The one thing. The one thing. To me, the, the lean management of their systems would allow them to understand exactly where they're at and what they can do from an agile perspective. Having be able to plug and play different processes to, to plop and drop, to, to lift and relocate to other locations if they need to. Having their processes very modularized or systematized so that they can be up and running in other locales when, when one locale is not an option. Excellent. JD, thank you so much for your insights today. My pleasure. Are you ready to find the money in your supply chain? Visit www.autosupplychainprofits.com to learn how, or click the link in the show notes below.